as people again imagine that the main theater um, of this war is taking place in, in Israel. No one is actually paying attention to what is happening in the West. But what you're seeing right now in, the, in our streets um, is an activation of terrorist networks. And it gives you an idea of the kind of, uh, I would say, the main power that they can mobilize. Coming up on British thought leaders, Catherine Perez Shakdam, commentator and Middle East expert. As a journalist in Iran, Catherine saw the workings of the regime. Iran was mapping out the Jewish diaspora in view of harming uh, certain individuals within the diaspora and uh, destabilise Western capitals uh, through acts of terrorism. She says the West needs to act quickly to counter the dangers of Islamic extremism. This is not just about protecting the Jewish community. That, that would be a disservice to, to the whole of, of Great Britain. What about Muslim communities? What about Christian communities? What about atheists? What about everybody else? Because everyone is in the line of fire as, as far as Islamists are concerned. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. Catherine Paris, Shakdown, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. My pleasure, thank you. You were undercover in Iran as a journalist. I mean, could you tell us your story and what happened? Uh, it's a very long story, uh, but to, to make it quite short, I mean, I would actually invite your readers to, uh, or viewers rather, to read um, a, a brilliant investigative piece that uh, David Rose did on the Jewish Chronicles that kind of relate my, my story. And also I've written about it on ACLS, which is at the American Center for Eleven Studies, where I, I get into details. Um, but I was given an, an opportunity when I was back in Yemen to write for certain outlets um, linked to the Islamic Republic of Iran, um, and I knew that they were. And I realized then that for some reason, the regime had paid attention to the things that I was saying. They misconstrued some of, some of my criticism of Western capitals in Iraq. Uh, and I think that they saw me as someone that could be turned uh, and be used as a mouthpiece, essentially. Um, they're quite desperate for voices in the West. Right to echo some of the things that they say and make them palatable to a Western audience. Um, and I played into it. I realized that I had an opportunity um, that because they came to me, they would never suspect. Um, and I guess they didn't do their due diligence properly. Uh, they didn't know I was Jewish. Um, and so I was let in. So it took me, it took me a long time. It's not, it didn't happen in just a year. It took me many, many, many years of hard work uh, to try to get as close as I could. Um, and I got pretty, pretty close. I was invited to go to Tehran to uh, attend a conference uh, that is being held every four years on Palestine. And the Jewish question was actually discussed there when I was there, which allowed me to uh, inform the authorities um, and the think tank that I was wor working for at the time that actually Iran was mapping out the Jewish diaspora in view of harming uh, certain individuals within the diaspora and uh, destabilize. Western capitals uh, through acts of terrorism. And I think that, unfortunately, uh, it came true. Did you feel safe when you were there? I didn't really think about it, if I'm completely honest with you. I mean, I knew that the risk was there. Um, and a couple of times, certain questions were being asked that you know, um, made me feel a little bit hesitant to continue. And I knew that it wasn't an easy balancing act. Um, but because I, was, I had been handpicked by the OSGC and people close to the OSGC, uh, notably Nader Talibzadeh, who was the, the, the chief ideologues of the Islamic Republic of Iran, I knew that they, there was um, not too much scrutiny as far as who I was and why I was there, because I was there upon their invitation. So that helped me. 
Um, and uh, I chose to, I wouldn't say ignore it, but when you're in the middle of it, it it's better not to think too much. Um, and I was very careful never to ask too many questions. So it was just more the case of observing and trying to gather information rather than asking uh, things that could upset people and potentially raise some um, unfortunate questions as to why I was, I was so curious. So again, very difficult balancing act, but I managed to, uh, to do it quite successfully. You met with the, the supreme leader of Iran, yes. and they call him. What did you learn from that? What was said there? I would say, look, in terms of information per se, not much. Um, you know, it's not like he just sat down with me and told me what he wanted to do with the rest of the world. Um, but in terms of the kind of person that he is, and I would say the, the psychology of the regime, because he represents the regime, he embodies it. Uh, I've learned quite a lot. Um, I mean, it's no news to anyone, but he's a raging narcissist. But he's also someone that profoundly believes in what he's saying. And I think that the problem that we have today in the West is that we, we believe that those are the ranting of a lunatic. He's not a lunatic. I mean, yes, he is, but he's a lunatic who can implement his ideology, and that makes him extremely dangerous. So when he says things like death to America and death to Israel, he does mean it. Um, and we don't understand to which extent he means it. And, and the means and the, the, the will that stands behind that, that slogan. Um, and that's the impression that he gave me. I mean, he talked uh, at length of you know, certain prediction that resides within Islamic texts in terms of the end, you know, the, the end of the world and the great war that has been foretold and how it would take place and that Syria would play an important part in this and how it was his, his, uh, his job as uh, one of the general of Imam Mahdi, this um, infamous messiah that they're waiting for, um, to precipitate that event. And that in order to do so, he would have to annihilate Israel. And that was impressed very strongly upon me, and that in order to do so, he was willing to commit acts of genocide, even against his own people, if that meant glory to God, um, which I think, as far as I'm concerned in modern history, is, is the first time that we have an individual who's advocating um, not only a world war, but annihilation of entire communities, not just the Jewish community or even the state of Israel, uh, but the West in general and everything that we stand for in terms of democratic value, uh, human rights, uh, and I would say the, the sanctity of life more profoundly. And that I've tried to translate, um, but unfortunately, again, because you know, he's, he's an indiv individual that sits so far out of what we can comprehend. Um, because everything that we do see in terms of world events, we translate through our own bias, and we have a very liber you know, democratic, liberal bias. Uh, we can't comprehend what is it that he wants and how he could possibly have such a nihilistic worldview, but he does. Um, and again, I think I felt in terms of warning and preventing what we see today, and I believe that what we see today in Israel, um, and unfortunately in Gaza, is a result of this, the, those policies, this desire to lay waste entire communities, and in order to do so, commit acts of genocide. Do you think the West has a clear understanding of how much of Iran's intent is beyond its own borders? No. No, again, I think that we, we came from an understanding that the Islamic Republic of Iran had an ideology that existed and, and was contained within its borders. It's not the case. It's geared toward export. I've talked and written about it at length. Um, you know, if you go back to Ayatollah Khomeini, who imagined uh, the governance of the jurists, the, the very ideology that underpins the Islamic Republic. Um, it's, it's meant 
Yvonne, I, I, I think, is just an accident of geography. He happened to be Iranian, and so he went back home to try to consolidate his position, and then from then on used that as a, I would say, as a base <clears throat> to expand, very much like ISIS did in Syria and in Iraq. It was never meant to just be contained. Uh, it's an ideology that wants more territory, because um, a lot of the Islamic teachings uh, are geared towards, again, for, you know, forced converting communities, expanding their territories, and ultimately world domination, which I know sounds completely insane to any Western, you know, listeners or readers, because you're thinking, but how, how could that be? The times of the, you know, the empires is, is, is done, is gone. Um, but not in their mind. In their mind, they have this desire of conquest. Um, and it is the, I would say, the ultimate expression of their piety, of their faith to conquer the world, to reconquer the world so that God could, could rule um, undisturbed and unchallenged. Now, how much of an influence do you think Iran had on the, the Hamas terror attacks on Israel? A tremendous influence. I mean, look, for decades, and we have warned, Israel has warned for decades and decades, that ever since Hamas came to existence, the Islamic Republic of Iran has done everything it could to not only fund the efforts of Hamas, uh, but also train them, um, aid them, obey them, and uh, furnish them with weapons. And we know that to be true today. Countless reports have come out. Um, Hamas, um, I mean, Hamas uh, terrorists came out <coughs> in, a, in a press release, in a video, saying that they were extremely grateful to the Islamic Republic of Iran for making this terrible attack against Israel possible. So that tells you the level, um, not just of friendship, but the ideological control that Iran uh, holds on Hamas, um, and unfortunately, over Hezbollah, over Syria, over Yemen, uh, and over Iraq. So this axis of resistance that they talk about in Tehran um, is actually being put into action and has been activated. And Israel may be in the line of fire today, but make no mistake, the West is under attack. And I think that Israel is very much the canary in the mine, where it's, a, it's, a, it's foretelling of what will befall here. And I will refer to you to, um, to the demonstrations, the, those pro-Palestinians demonstrations where you see profanities really against freedom of religion, against community on the basis of their ethnicity or their faith or even their political affiliations. They're extremely violent um, in the way that they present themselves, the message, the slogans that they carry, uh, also the demands, the political demands. Um, they demand the, the annihilation of the state of Israel and, and with that an entire people, the Jews, which is insane. Uh, it's, it's a bad dream that echoes of the 1930s. Um, and the Islamic Republic of Iran did this, absolutely did this. And, and the question that we need to ask ourselves today is that what happened in Israel on the 7th of October could be replicated here in the West. And so I would invite people to not be too hasty in condemning and accusing Israel um, of not being fair or, or not conducting its military strike with um, enough accuracy because it could be us tomorrow. And I don't know what our response would be, or should be, rather. Looking at the UK, the head of MI5 recently warned about Iran-backed terror attacks. and said something along the lines of the last 18 months have been an intensive phase of Iran-generated problems on UK soil. How do these problems manifest, and what can Britain do to push back? I would say it's going to be difficult to do it now. Um, and I would say only because we have warned. And I want to say, when I say we, 
Uh, I'm talking about colleagues of mine, experts um, working for think tanks and, and presenting policy briefs to, to government on a regular basis, whether in the UK or, or even in, in the US or in the EU. Uh, we have warned about cyber attacks, they on the rise. We have warned of the presence of terrorists and terrorist militants here in the UK. Uh, we have explained the networks that they're using to, um, to disseminate not only their ideology, but organize themselves. Uh, in, in very, I would say, potent and powerful organizations through a whole network of NGOs and charities. Uh, we have talked about terror funding. Um, so that you have entire, it's, it's like an octopus now. It's, it's a cancer that has spread at the very heart of our Western capitals. Um, and they have used and exploited our laws and the fact that we are liberal democracies and that we do want people to feel free to express themselves. Uh, and they have weaponized that again against us. So today, in order to combat it, you would need to be extremely strict. Uh, you would need to have a, a legislation that is robust enough for us to be able to act against people and not to, at the same time, not to contravene the, the rights um, and privileges that we have here in the West and that we need to hold dear, mainly freedom of expression. People right now have been arrested for committing acts of anti-Semitism and other violence against people. Uh, <clears throat> and people are, are saying that now we are violating freedom of speech. And I would disagree. You are free to say whatever you want, but you're going to have to suffer the consequences if those things actually contravene the law um, and, and present a danger to other communities. Um, so we need to, to be walking a very fine line. The fear that I have today is that because we need to react and react quickly, you are allowing, I would say, those voices on the extreme to gain traction. And, and, and there lies the danger. How do you act against violent ideology that are by essence radical and stand in opposition to everything that we stand for without actually giving an ear and more power to those elements within our society who may not be Islamists per se, but who do stand against our value too, because you have to understand that we have issues with the far right and the far left. So th those are issues that we're gonna have to grapple with as, at the same time as we're trying to grapple with the, the rise of Islamism in the UK, in the EU and, and across Western capitals. So this is a challenge for the UK government and I would say the world. Um, and we're gonna need to get it right because we can't afford to lose this one. I think Iran is directly stirring the pot in the UK with the anti-Semitism we've seen recently. Absolutely. Um, I do believe, and I'm speaking from experience and, and things that were said to me when I was in, in Iran, um, that actually Israel for me is a distraction. Uh, and by that, I do not mean to take away from the horror um, and, and the violence and the blood that was shed in Israel, not at all. What I'm trying to say is that as people, again, imagine that the main theater um, of this war is taking place in, in Israel. No one is actually paying attention to what is happening in the West. But what you're seeing right now in, the, in all streets um, is an activation of terrorist networks. And it gives you an idea of the kind of, uh, I would say, the main power that they can mobilize. The, the number of people who do have sympathy towards terrorism because it has been rationalized, it has been normalized uh, to the point where people, and I would say, you know, regular British people, um, are actually quite comfortable defending acts of terror by saying that those are acts of liberation, which is exactly what the Islamic Republic of Iran wants you to do, wants you to say and wants you to believe that sometimes the abominable can be tolerable and palatable to people in the name of freedom. 
So there's a, there's a, there's a warping of the mind. There's, this, there's a gaslighting of entire populations. Um, and I would say, like, my biggest warning would be that we need to remember history. In the 1930s, Nazi Germany rose to power not by force, but through democratic means. And there lies the biggest danger. People need to understand that by paying, I would say, it's, it's not even giving a license to, but tolerating the justification of terror against any community, because it, it doesn't really matter who, who, who is in the line of fire, but tolerating it and, and believing like our UN Secretary General um, believes that it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, that somewhat the victims are actually um, the criminals in the story, that they somewhat created the situation and that the attack was warranted in view of the, the offenses that they, they committed is insanity to me. Because you might as well just you know, argue that ISIS had a point that its stance in Iraq and in Syria against Western interests was justified because of the past offense that colonial powers um, committed in the region, which is insanity. You, you, can't, you can't do this. This is not even an argument to be had. And yet they're doing it. And yet we're paying, we're paying near to this. We're actually playing into those dynamics. And there's a danger here. And I think that we owe, we owe it to ourselves to educate ourselves and understand that it exists beyond the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. That the reason why it started in Israel is because anti-Semitism is so rife and, and lies at the, at the surface of everything. It's just right there. You just scratch it a little bit and it just comes out in all its, its, its ugliness. That it is why Israel was attacked, because it's so easy for people to ignore when massacres are committed against the Jews, it's so easy for people to rationalize, not understanding that by doing so, they're actually condemning themselves. Because what happens when they are the people being attacked, when their communities face that danger, who will speak for them then? Because they just condemn themselves by condemning us in Israel and the Jews in general. So who, who then will stand for them? What then? And who are we at the end of the day? If, that's, it's, if we, we are capable of saying that you know, women and children deserve to be beheaded and burned alive. Who are we to speak about freedom and democracy? What role does China play in all of this and its connection with Iran? It's an interesting one. Um, China normally has had, um, I would say, um, did not meddle too much in the Middle East, um, at least not as far as politics was concerned. It was more about energy security and acquiring new markets. Um, so it was, it was advancing its position from a very different angle. Um, I think that things changed. The more Iran and China got closer together, I think the more China gained an appetite for, I would say, politics in the Middle East and understood that because America withdrew, a vacuum had been created. Um, and China, of course, wants to exploit a vacuum. Um, I mean, it would, I would say that it, it's the nature of things. You know, when a vacuum is created, something needs to fill it. And China was there. Um, China is hungry for more, more control, more territory, uh, more markets. And so China entered the fray. Uh, I think we saw this more particularly with um, the formulation of an agreement between Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran just recently um, in order to, to broker some kind of a peace deal in Yemen, essentially. Um, and we see this today, I would say, not overtly, but covertly, mainly by the fact that China did not use the leverage that it has over the Islamic Republic of Iran to tell Tehran to back off the Levant and essentially 
force Hamas to withdraw from, from Israel in its attack. Um, and so for me, not doing anything in view of the, the advancement that China managed to secure in the Middle East tells you quite a lot about what it wants to do for the future and how it wants to position itself. And it wouldn't surprise me that China at some point might volunteer its services in terms of, oh, I, I, I may be able to broker a deal because it wants to push America um, at the very corner of the Middle East and make sure that it run the show. So there's a danger there. And, and I think that America is aware. I'm just worried that it might be a bit too late. Do you think there are nations in the Middle East that the West could have been a bit more supportive of? And because they weren't, we've pushed them towards Iran and China. Yes. And I, I think that the, I, I'm, I'm going to stay with one because I think it's the, the piece of resistance, uh, Saudi Arabia. I think that we failed Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think that the reason why we failed Saudi Arabia is because we failed Israel. Israel has, historically speaking, been um, one of the most strategic ally of the United States of America and also the UK and the EU, by extension. And I do believe that Western powers have abandoned Israel and Saudi Arabia was paying attention. Um, because if you look, in order to judge how or how far Western powers would be willing to go by standing by Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia only had to look at uh, what Western powers were doing with Israel, the only democracy in, in the region. So you would imagine that Israel had a very special status, at least you know, as far as Western capitals were concerned, in terms of defending Israel's standing in the region and the world, because it needed Israel to be there and to thrive and to flourish and possibly rally around more capitals and normalize and, and, and stabilize the region. Yeah. It hasn't happened, has it? And so Saudi Arabia just quite logically um, deducted that the West would not stand by you know, its policies and would not come to its aid should it need to. Um, and so he decided to look elsewhere to find a solution because also um, nothing has been done to s stop the rise of the Islamic Republic of Iran, even though Saudi Arabia warned against it and did everything it could. Saudi Arabia went to war with Yemen because it understood that Iran was standing right behind the Houthis in Yemen. And the West did not do much, at least not enough. The JCPOA was a joke. It fell profoundly and miserably. If anything, um, the Biden administration empowered the Islamic Republic further uh, and China. And so Saudi Arabia had to decide, you know, who do, I, who do I become friend with? Who do I align myself with in order to at least buy myself some time? Which I think why it signed um, this agreement with Iran, not because it, it viewed Iran as a friend and a partner, no, but because a signal was sent to Washington that something needs to happen. Otherwise, Saudi Arabia will need to do what Saudi Arabia needs to do to survive this and, and to ride the wave. Um, and so I think that, again, if a friend was, was to be found in the region that could actually bring stability and calm, it would be Saudi Arabia. It's the only country in the region with enough, I would say, religious standing, uh, enough of a military backing and power through the GCC and wealth to stand up to the Islamic Republic of Iran and stand up to China and stop the advances because China is energy hungry. China needs Saudi Arabia. It needs the Islamic Republic of Iran, but it doesn't really care whether it's the Islamic Republic of Iran or another regime that takes over. And so there's an opportunity there you know, to bring calm back to the region and possibly find means and ways to push back against China's influence in the region.
Is there a, a silent war happening between the West and Iran and China, whether the West accepts it or not? I wouldn't say it's a silent war. Um, I think um, it's silent in the sense that it hasn't broken in, into the media yet and that the, the public, the greater public, is still under the illusion that everything is okay and is business as usual. Um, I think that war broke on 7th of October. Um, it's, it's always, you know, after World War II, I mean, when we enter World War II and World War I, um, I don't think that it, at, the, at the very beginning of it, people could grasp what date triggered it. Uh, it's only when, you know, the dust settles and you look back and you, you realize, oh, you know, this is, this is what, you know, made it happen. This is the event um, that just kind of flipped everything. Um, and I think that that happened on October 7th. But it's not, it's not, look, this prediction doesn't mean that this is World War III. We still have time and we have an opportunity to fix it um, and, and possibly, I believe, change the narrative and dynamics completely uh, and for the better. Uh, but we need to have a leadership that is cohesive. We need to have a language you know, across Western capitals that is um, of togetherness. Um, and I keep talking about the coalition of the willing, but this is really what we need is people to understand that we need to have to show a common front uh, and to have a will that is unbending, to draw a line in the sun and say no more uh, and actually stand by it and defend it. And if necessary, um, you know, preempt an attack. And until we decide that the Islamic Republic of Iran is actually the real enemy uh, to be had, um, I'm afraid that we're going to keep putting out fires. You know, whether it's Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS, it doesn't matter, but it's going, to keep, it's going to keep coming at us. And I think this is what Iran is doing to us. It's, um, Iran cannot fight a war that is a frontal war. And so it's hiding behind its proxies, trying to, I would say, force us to spend so much of our resources and our will. Um, any country, any given country has only so much, I would say, appetite for war and disruption and chaos. Um, there's a point in time when you kind of give up and say no more. And so I think this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to expand our will. Um, and so this is why we, we need to make sure that we don't do this, that we don't fall into the trap that the Islamic Republic is setting for us. Uh, unfortunately, we keep doing it to this very day um, and to take the fight to them. And I don't mean military intervention, but there are things that we could do on an inter international level to not only empower the opposition in Iran, so that people could go after the regime and bring it down. Um, there are means and ways that we could actually cut off um, some of the, the proxies that Iran is hiding behind and using and exploiting to foment chaos across the region and our Western capitals. There are many things that we could do if only we were to do it together. But together, I think, is the key word that is lacking in the conversation right now. Mm. Uh, on, on that subject, I mean, how confident do you feel after what we've seen with people out in the streets in London with how the police have handled things and generally will we get this united uh, front that we need? I think it's coming. I know that people are working extremely hard, uh, myself included, in trying to not to just to raise awareness but to, to give, um, I would say, government officials and policymakers the tools uh, and the expertise that they need in order to, to make the right decisions because, again, uh, it's not just about, you know, an immediate reaction. Um, knee-jerk reaction are always quite dangerous. We need to think this through and make sure that we're not um, empowering, again, 
you know, uh, extreme elements within our society. Might it be the far right or the far left? We need to be careful. Uh, we live in a democracy. We need to make sure that everyone is protected and whatever measures we take uh, are thought through um, and we not become the weapon of tomorrow for, for other parties. Uh, so there's a danger there. Um, but I think it's coming. I think that the authorities were, were caught we caught up um, and did not, I don't think that anyone expected this, the level of um, violence. The, the, the anti-Semitism really got to me uh, on a personal level. It's, uh, I knew it was there, uh, but you see people defile posters, for example. Uh, I found particularly despicable. Um, I'm a mother and uh, for, for me to, uh, for anyone in the UK to, to feel entitled um, to that kind of behavior uh, on account that the politics demands it, um, is unpalatable. Um, I, I'm not quite sure how can people rationalize that kind of behavior because at the end of the day, life is sacred as far as I'm concerned. Um, and a life is a life. An innocent is an innocent. Uh, geography matters little. Faith matters even less. Um, and I, I just find this very dangerous and I, I don't understand it. I refuse to understand it because I, I don't want to operate on that, on that kind of a uh, wavelength. Um, but again, people are so easy to uh, feel very self-righteous um, about freedom and, and political self-determination and yet condemn a community uh, on the basis of that for, for daring to want to exercise political self-determination, to, to dare demand that their so the national sovereignty be respected and that they be given the right that every single nation has under international law to defend themselves. The notion that you know, Jews could be expected to just what, just stand in line and, and wait, wait for people to come and chop our head off. Is that what people want? Because this is what they're doing in the streets by taking off those posters, that's, what, that's the message. People taking Islam and militarizing it and, and using it to attack. Mm -hmm. you know, how big of a problem is that in the UK in your opinion? It's not just the UK. Um, I heard an, an interview just a few days ago that I found quite interesting. Um, and I know that people would scream and shout Islamophobia, but it's, it's not, I'm talking numbers. Um, there are about 1.2 billion Muslims across the world. Um, we, I mean, numbers are putting the most extreme elements within this community at about 15 to 25%. It's a large number uh, and again, um, we need to remember that Muslims are actually the first victims of Islamism. Um, this is something that is not being said enough. So this is not me condemning an entire community, not at all. It's just to say that the Muslim community is in danger because in their midst hide extreme elements that have weaponized Islam because it's a convenient conduit um, and that they found a certain echo in the text that allows them to carry the hatred that they carry and to formulate it in a way that is being disseminated across communities. Um, but they themselves stand in the line of fire. These themselves will suffer from, you know, Islamophobia if people decide to, to take offense and actually blame them for what a minority few is doing in their name. Um, so they themselves are the first people that we ought to defend and in order to defend them we need to address Islamism and condemn it. Um, and we need to find a solution to this with them because you know they are part of the solution. They need to be part of the solution. 
So this is not me saying that you know, we need to exclude them, not at all, because they are the ones suffering from it. My community suffers from Islamism just as much, um, but they're the one in numbers that suffered the most on paper. Um, I mean, ISIS, you know, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, people are dying every day because of, of Islamic radicalism. Um, but nobody talks about it because when, Muslim, when a Muslim kills, kills another Muslim, it doesn't make the news. Um, but what we've seen in, in Israel on the 7th of October happens every day in Iran by the hands of the regime, happened every day under ISIS by the hand of the, the Islamic Caliphate. Uh, it happens every day in Afghanistan by the hand of the Taliban, happens every day in Yemen by the hands of the Houthis. It doesn't make the news. So we have a serious problem here not by virtue of, you know, we have Muslims in the country, is by the fact that Islamic radicalism is hiding within our Muslim community here and, and everywhere else for that matter. And we need to address it and address it thoroughly. We have Hamas supporters and leaders here in the UK um, that were given residence. I understand that there's a, there's a bit of a semantic debate um, and, and, and an argument being made of whether or not um, you know, it was okay because it wasn't prescribed as a terrorist organization just yet and um, not completely. Um, but it doesn't matter. We know that today, so what is being done? Many things need to happen in this country because, again, this is not just about protecting the Jewish community. That, that would be a disservice to, to the whole of, of Great Britain. What about Muslim communities? What about Christian communities? What about atheists? What about everybody else? Because everyone is in the line of fire as, as far as Islamists are concerned. Because if you do not acquiesce 100% and do not bend to the wheel absolutely, you, you are an apostate and you have to die. And you only have to look at October 7th to see how that, would, how that death would come and what it would look like. Uh, and I don't think we're ready for this in the UK or anywhere else for that matter. Israel suffered from it. So see it learn from it and make sure that it doesn't happen here. Catherine Price, Shagdan, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your thought leaders. My pleasure.